Welcome to 52 Episodes to Science Fiction Film Literacy. My name is Chris Garcia. Roll sound. I'm going to talk about what I consider to be one of the five most important science fiction films ever made, really. And it's one of the reasons why I included it in both the 52 Weeks to Science Fiction Film Literacy and 52 Episodes. And that's Forbidden Planet. And it's not just because it is a hugely significant piece of science fiction filmmaking, because it is, but because of how influential it was on the entire genre and how it helped to change everything. It really set the stage for changes. And what's often true is that films that lead to massive changes are often themselves not that great. That it's only in retrospect, when you go back and examine it, that it becomes great. Forbidden Planet has always been great. At the time, currently, always. And part of the reason for that is how innovative it was in not only its storytelling, but in its productions, methodologies. Let's start at the very beginning. The framework upon which Forbidden Planet is hung is Shakespeare's The Tempest. But there's a whole lot more there, even. Since the dawn of time, there's been a classic story, which is a group is sent to recover someone. The Searchers is the best example of this, I think. But Saving Private Ryan, all sorts of things. And here, it is a group of in a spaceship, commanded by Commander John J. Adams, who go to recover a group that had gone to Altera IV 20 years before. And when they get there, there's only one survivor, Dr. Morbius, and his daughter, and a robot. And as the story unfolds, there's this monster from the id. And there's this technology that all came from this group called the Krell, <coughs> who have been extinct for more than 200,000 years. And he has revived some of their technologies, which, of course, created a monster, which so many different things happened there. <coughs> What's fascinating is that this is ultimately the artifact of its time. A great example is an interaction between a character played by the wonderful Jack Kelly, Lieutenant Jerry Farman, Farman, whatever, and Anne Francis, who plays Altera, who is Morbius's daughter. Basically, Fairman teaches Altera about kissing, gets caught by Commander Adams, who dismisses him, and then schools, basically, Altera, for dressing provocatively, for not being worldly, I guess is the best way to put it. Today we might say this is victim-blaming. But it's at a very interesting time in the history of science fiction, where you have this rise of, I don't want to say sexually charged science fiction, but that certainly qualifies. You had Philip Jose Farmer's The Lovers, for example, really ushering sex into science fiction, far more so than the classic sort of uh, busty heroine on the cover of, you know, your pulp magazines. But at the same time, you had this sort of, the science fiction establishment pushing that away. And that plays out here brilliantly. Farman is sort of the the next wave of science fiction that's coming in, and then being repressed by the older, older wave, the commander. And maybe I'm reading far too deeply into that, but it seems 
very appropriate to the conversation of the 1950s. Now, production-wise is really where this gets interesting. <clears throat> and on this frame of The Tempest, we have the monster from the id is the first thing. One of the animators from Disney was loaned out to MGM to do the animation for this, and it's gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful. And oddly, it feels very MGM and less Disney, which I think is the sign of a very good realization, is that it, if you take someone out of their natural environment and put them in a new environment, they have to be able to show they adapt to the new environment. And this certainly does. The cinematography here is phenomenal. There's mat work, there's model work. All of it is great, which is important. Because what they're doing is setting up this whole world, and they're bringing you into it. And it was shot in Eastman color, it's in CinemaScope, it's an immersive event, so it has to have these incredible production values to go with all that, to make use of it. But what really brings you that extra step into it, into this strange new world, is the best way to put it, is the soundtrack. The soundtrack is composed by, I can't, I don't know if it's Bebe or Beeb, and Louis Barron. And they, they developed a series of circuits that allowed them to come up with these really amazing otherworldly sounds, things that wouldn't have been heard up to that point. You have to remember that the Moog, or Moog, synthesizer hadn't been developed yet. That electronic music that was coming out of places like Bell Labs was super simplistic. The work of Math Matthews really hadn't taken off yet. So this would have been completely otherworldly. The uh, circuit that we now would call a ring modulator is a perfect example. And you have these sort of effects and these reverberations and this whole soundscape, which is so bizarre. There's not a theremin used in this, which actually surprised me because I could have sworn this is something different. And this is the experimentation in electronic music that is really important. Neat side note, I didn't realize this. In 1976, the World Science Fiction Convention, Worldcon, was in Kansas City, Mid-American, and it's far more famous for being the place where Star Wars showed their first trailer and got their, brought Mark Hamill and all those folks there. But more important to me, at least, is that is where the first time the soundtrack as an LP was played. And what's, you know, neatly coincidental, 40 years later, they had the World Con at Kansas City again just a couple weeks ago, Mid-American 2, so full circle. The amazing thing about the costumes in particular is that they they gave off... One, you have the, the ship, the crew, and their design is so clean. I mean, looking at it, it's phenomenally... It's not based off of what we would think of as Siemens or you know, sailor gear. Instead, it's more a combination of traditional army gear and just workman clothes. And that actually is far further looking, if you think about it, than, you know, what they were doing in things like Rocket Ship XM and uh, Destination Moon. It's far more nuanced. And the props are phenomenal. The most important, of course, being Robbie the Robot. And Robbie the Robot is, with the possible exception of R2-D2 and C-3PO, the most important robots in the history of film. And no wonder. It's so perfectly envisioned. You have that helmet part with the whirly bits that just screams that it's a robot. That it's 
brain is positronic or whatever that represents. I'm always fascinated by people who look at this work and think that it is stodgy and stilted. Because if you compare it to something like Destination Moon, the acting is far more naturalistic. And Leslie Nielsen is a bit stiff, yes. Which made him work as a comedian so well later in his career. Because he can deliver that comedy while still being that sort of formal, he bends in his rigidity. Which is really a great way to make it happen. There are some really significant things that came out of this. And the space exploration idea for film really took hold here. Yes, you had things like Destination Moon and Rocket Ship XM that were before this, but neither of them really hit the concept on the head like this. Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, had noted that a lot of elements of Star Trek were inspired by Forbidden Planet, and it makes total sense. There were lots of sort of references to it throughout science fiction, it's mentioned, for example, in science, science Fiction Double Feature in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. There is The Return to the Forbidden Planet, which is a Olivier Award-winning musical uh, from 1989. Lots of different sort of references to it all over the place. I've seen it noted that Planet of Evil from Doctor Who is based, loosely based on it, and it makes sense. But what really gets me is that when you look at the concepts that spacefaring science fiction clings to, the idea of this dominant captain who is somewhat rigid and focused, but still humane, that is absolutely 100% throughout the history of science fiction, television in particular. But you definitely see it in science fiction film. And I really think that this set up what the mainstream of science fiction film was, all the way up through the 70s, when you start to see more experimentation. And one of the films that's coming up, 2001, will definitely explore that idea. Speaking of films that are coming up, we're going to be looking at an Italian movie, The Day the Earth Exploded, a classic of sorts. We're going to be looking at Mothra, Plan 9 from Outer Space, a personal favorite, where I'm going to talk about process and how films can become living entities. And that'll be a fascinating, a very filmic discussion, as will Le Jeté, which is French, and then Doctor Who and the Daleks. So we're going to be talking about a lot of international films here. We're going from Italy to the U.S. to Japan to France to England. So the next year should be pretty fun. And we're getting close to the halfway point. And... I think there may be some juggling coming up after this, but we're going to see a lot more looking at the role of science fiction in the broader film universe. And that's going to be a very interesting little discussion. So stay tuned.